2: This is where we gather to revel in wrong-think on a daily basis. Happy to welcome my fellow wrong-thinker, Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, great to have you on the show again.
1: Oh, great to hear, be here, Brian. Are we going to play uh, our era's version of Where's Waldo?
2: Yeah, I, I was just looking at this article <laughs> on your website, and, and you you make a good point. It's, it's not Waldo who's missing so much. It's Dr. Fauci. Where has this guy been?
1: Yeah, all of a sudden, he's nowhere to be found. He's not in the news. He's not being quoted. Uh, we're not hearing about his guidance. Uh, he's simply vanished. Now, I heard Tucker Carlson. Or no, it wasn't Tucker Carlson. It was, uh, was Ron DeSantis to, to say that he's in the Witness Protection Program. I think he was just but he might be, might be serious. Well, it's,
2: it's very, uh, I mean, look, I, I'm glad to see him off the stage. But at the same time, I'd like to see him sitting in a courtroom, actually, as a defendant, you know, answering for some well, of the
1: things he's done. Sure. Me too. And that's why it's so frustrating that, uh, you know, like a school of fish, you know, when the, the lead minnow turns a certain way and the whole school uh, follows the lead minnow, uh, all of a sudden, Putin bad, Ukraine good. Uh, so as to get everybody's attention off of this, uh, this horrendous fiasco and not just the horrendous fiasco, but those who are responsible for it. Uh, we didn't need masks. We didn't need ivermectin. We didn't need monoclonal antibodies. All we needed was Putin to solve the pandemic.
2: Boy, apparently, I, I know the the Babylon Bee actually made some fun of this and said uh, Putin has been awarded the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize in Medicine for stopping the COVID yep. pandemic. But give yep. me give me your take. I I know that you're a person who watches with a critical eye, and you're you're probably not as prone to propaganda as some might be. But have you ever mm-hmm. seen such an onslaught like we have seen since the hostilities began in Ukraine?
1: Yeah, sure. Two years ago. <laughs> okay. It's exactly the same thing, and it's from exactly the same people. You know, the, the, the you know the, the bits and pieces are a little bit different. Last time it was uh, a virus that was going to kill us all. Now it's Putin's going to kill us all, and it's coming from the same sources who are whipping up the same hysteria to get everybody whipped up into a frenzy, an insane frenzy. I mean, it is as bad as the whole thing with the diapering and the sickness kabuki. I've been following articles all over the world about how, uh, for example, cat shows, cat shows, they're banning Russian cats, <laughs> and, and people are pouring Solzhenyad down the drain, and uh, all these other simple-minded idiocies and performance moralizing, you know, kind of like the whole thing with the, the diaper wearing, people who put these things on to show how virtuous they were, how much they care. Now everybody cares about Ukraine, and so fatuous, despicable, and simple-minded and I'm not a Putin poodle. I'm not saying that Putin is some kind of moral avatar. I'm saying this is a complex business, and uh, there's good and bad on both sides. And one thing that's particularly bad on our side is that this whole thing is distracting the entire public from holding accountable the people who have been brutalizing this country for the past years in the name of this so-called pandemic.
2: Amen. No, I. that is my biggest concern right now, even more so than gas inching up over 4 bucks a gallon, even more so than yeah. the, the prospect of... <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm even more concerned about this than I am the prospect of nuclear war, and that is the idea that somehow the people who pushed all of that tyranny on us the last couple of years are somehow going to scurry away while everybody else is distracted and chanting in unison about
1: Putin bad. Sure, and you know as far as nuclear war goes, this might be just as bad in terms sort of its effect. Uh, gas in my area is already over four bucks, and some parts of the country it's at six dollars. And it's not just gas, of course. It affects everything. It affects the cost of food in stores, and we're going to reach a point of mass impoverishment in this country very soon if something that is not done to rectify the situation. Try to visualize a world in which a gallon of gas costs seven or eight dollars, and uh, you know, and a and a pound of ground beef costs twelve or fifteen dollars. It's not sustainable. You know, it is going to uh, cause people to lose their homes, it's going to crater the housing market. And you and I were talking a little bit about that off the air. I live in a fairly rural area, and most people who live here have to drive 60, 70, 80 miles every single day to get to work and back. And are they going to be able to afford to do that when it costs them $100 or more to fill up the gas tank of their car, and it costs them $200 to get a small bag of groceries? Absolutely not. You know, It's a recipe for a kind of financial economic implosion. Uh, that could be far worse than what this, this country experienced in the 1930s during the Depression. And it's completely artificial. It's totally contrived. There's absolutely no reason for this other than the CYAing of these political psychopaths who want everybody to stop thinking about what happened to them over the past two years.
2: Well, the good news is our Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, has just said, well, you know, if you're concerned about gas prices, go buy an electric car. So there you go. Yeah. Pro- problem solved.
1: This is, you know, this is our, our era's version of, uh, you know, the Marie Antoinette let them eat cake thing. Right. Uh, you know, Buttigieg gets paid, I don't know how much, he's got to be getting uh, at least $150,000 a year minimum, and that's probably way underestimating it uh, as a cabinet-level official in the federal government. So, of course, for him, spending $50,000 to get an electric car, uh, you know, who doesn't do that? He and all of his friends have no problem buying $50,000, $70,000 vehicles. But they're utterly economically tone deaf, or they're vicious and horrible people if they don't understand that for average people, they can't afford to spend fifty, sixty thousand dollars on an electric car. They simply can't do it. Leaving aside whether electric cars are neat and whether they're clean, and that's a whole separate issue, At the end of the day they cannot do that. You know, you're talking about doubling, if not tripling, the cost of transportation for the average person, and it's just obscene.
2: No, I, you know, that is the one place where I do feel a, a little pang of ooh concern is when I look at the, the fuel prices, because uh, I remember, and, and I'm, I'm sure you remember, too, back in uh, 2008, 2009, when we were, I guess it was yep. just, just before Obama was elected, we had gas prices, yep. you know, inching up there, you know, about where they are now. And yep. I remember, not only did the price of everything go up, but that's when I saw businesses have to close their doors, because they
1: just couldn't be cool. profitable. Sure, absolutely. You know, we're not getting a raise to make up for the increased cost of things. In fact, if anything, it's the opposite because uh, in addition to the price of gas going up, the value of our money is going down. You know, we admit to something on the order of 7% inflation over the past 13 months, but, you know, shadow stats and some other more reliable metrics and, and, and measurers of these things say that it's about 15%. And that makes sense to me if you just go by things like the cost of food in the store. Now, if you go back and look at what things cost, say, you know, a year, thirteen, fourteen months ago, versus what they cost now, you can see that the average cost of things is up by about fifteen percent. You know, leaving aside the fact that now we're supposed to spend four dollars on a gallon of gas or more. Amazing.
2: You know, someone made the observation the other day. I wanted to bounce this off you because I thought Eric would would appreciate this of all people. The crisis that we face not right now isn't COVID. The crisis is not war in Ukraine. The crisis is a population that is so easily led from crisis to crisis. Give me your thoughts on Without
1: that. question. Without question, that's absolutely true. They 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 sit addled in front of their TVs and whatever comes out of that boob tube, remember when they used to call it the boob tube? Oh, yeah. They accept the they received wisdom almost, you know, almost as if it were a deity. Uh, and I think part of the reason for that is that up until now, there haven't been any direct real-world consequences for a lot of these people. You know, they've been able to exhibit their, their performance virtue signaling by going along with whatever the narrative is, but the fridge is still full. Uh, their gas tank, they can afford to fill that. They can afford to buy food, and life goes on. So they can preen and posture and feel good about themselves uh, without having to bear the cost. Well, we're about to bear the cost. And, by the way, there's something extremely interesting to me about what's going on with regards to Putin bad and Ukraine good, and it is this. Can you imagine what will happen if Putin decides to start selling oil on the world market for approximately what it costs them to get it out of the ground, which, is, I understand it, is only about 10 or $15 per barrel? You can imagine that. And only accepts gold or any other uh, medium ex- of exchange except for the U.S. dollar. Imagine what that's going to do to the West.
2: Oh, yeah. Actually, um, later in my show, I have an article from Tom Luongo that uh, that talks mm-hmm. about this very possibility. He's like, you know, people are looking yep. at at Putin and saying, oh, look, the, these terrible weapons he's using in, in Ukraine. It's like he hasn't used his most terrible weapon. And, and it's exactly what you're describing.
1: Selling oil. for yeah. Gold. Yep. You know, I have a grudging admiration or I should say a respect for Putin, who, unlike our leadership, is both a nationalist, I think. Uh, and he's interested in the welfare of Russia and the Russian people. And good on him for that. If I were a Russian, I'd be grateful to have a leader like that. And he's also not an imbecile, unlike <laughs> the people who rule this country. So, you know, this simple-minded narrative that uh, he's just trying to, to stomp through the, Ukraine. It's Hitler all over again. Right. is not just right. stupid. It's dangerously stupid to under, to not try to understand the nuances and what's going on here. Literally Hitler. Where have we heard that before? Oh, yeah.
2: Starting in about uh, late 2016, it seems like that's that, yeah. that became the mantra. I guess uh, uh, Putin has now taken the place of Trump, now that Trump is off you know, yeah, the, you the know, stage.
1: It, 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 it's one of the hot-button words that the left, the woke left, likes to trot out, because it does have a lot of power. At least it did initially. It's a little piece of screeching that uh, if you raise your hand and ask, a, and ask an impolitic question about, let's say, quotas, that makes you a race.
2: Okay, hold that thought, Eric. We're going to continue our conversation just the other side of these commercial messages. Again, we're talking with Eric Peters from epautos.com.
0: I'll have a link in the show notes. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We are talking with Eric Peters from
2: ericpetersautos.com. And, uh, Eric, I have to credit you. You know, uh, when I heard Buttigieg's uh, comment yesterday about, well, just buy an electric car if you don't like gas prices, Mm -hmm. I thought, thank goodness I am friends with Eric Peters, who has Mm -hmm. uh, given me another angle to consider on electric vehicles and frankly, I don't, I don't know. Um, not only have you shown me some of the downsides of electric vehicles, but I have to wonder what's going to happen to the cost of electricity when suddenly that's in higher demand than, than gas. I assume that that cost exactly. will go up correspondingly.
1: Well, exactly. Supply and demand, right? I mean, this is just fundamental basic economics that people who, you know, used to go to like freshman, uh, freshman economics in college had some elemental g- grasp of, but now because the, the, the general populace has been and stupefied, by you know this this infant, infantilized point of view of, of, of the world, they don't get that. You know they don't stop and think. Well, wait a minute now. If we substantially increase demand for electricity by having the entire vehicle fleet or a large portion of it turned over to electric cars, without increasing the generating capacity, the production of electricity, hmm, what do you suppose the effect of that might be on the price of the electricity that you use to power up your electric car? You know, it just makes me want to look at them and go, duh, you know, like we used to do in seventh grade. And I know that that's juvenile, but it's sometimes appropriate.
2: No, and you, I I really appreciated your article on the labor theory of EV value. And I would encourage that my listeners check this out um, because there's a lot of wishful thinking that goes into, well, you know, electric cars, not only are they going to save the environment, but, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be financially feasible, too. Um, You've made the case many times over that without government subsidies, People still, I mean, the market itself is not demanding these electric
1: cars. It's it's more like
2: we're being shoehorned into an electric car solution.
1: No, even with all of the subsidies, and this is quite telling, I think, even with all of the subsidies and the favorable treatment that's given to electric cars, the least expensive of them are in the low $30,000 range. Now, you know, to put that into some perspective, you can go out and buy a Toyota Corolla, uh, anything equivalent to that Honda Civic, cars like that. Uh, you can pick up one of those for about 18,000 bucks. Okay. So you're talking about roughly doubling the price of a car for the average person. And, you know, that Corolla will go four or 500 miles on a tank full of gas, whereas the electric car might go 200, maybe 200 something possibly. And all of the other things that go along with that. And, you know, it's not something that would sell you know on the market by itself except in small numbers because most people you know uh, shockingly don't want to put, to pay a gigantic sum more for something that doesn't work as well as the less expensive alternative
2: gee i can't imagine
1: why I right just... so that's why they have to force this on people and you know what they're doing right now by forcing up the cost of gas and oil is that they hope they can force people into electric cars by making the electric car artificially seem like it is a more economical alternative. The problem is that you're left with no alternative except an extremely expensive vehicle. You know, it's either extremely expensive to fuel if it's not an electric car, or it's extremely expensive to buy if it is an electric car. And then when people start buying electric cars and the demand for electricity goes up, then it's going to cost that much more to put the electricity into the electric car. So it's a zero-sum game where we lose and the people behind all of this win.
2: So let's, let's talk for a moment. I want you to strategize with me about um, high gas prices. Obviously, you yeah. know, my, my days of, well, I feel like just getting in the car and going for a drive. When gas gets yeah. up this high, suddenly that is not so much of an option. Um, what do you recommend for people who are determined to maintain their freedom and their mobility in the face of uh, prohibitively high
1: fuel? well, we can't really do a whole lot about the price of gas. The only thing that we can do is figure out ways to reduce what we spend on other things. So uh, to be, as our grandparents were, more frugal and careful about how we spend our money and on what we spend money on, and to make as much use of the things that we have as we possibly can as a way to counterbalance the effect of these high costs that we really can't do that much about. Uh, One thing that I'm doing, and I think you're doing as well, and I know we've talked about it, uh, is raising my own food, which reduces the cost of food at the grocery store. Uh, and that in turn gives me a little bit more money so that I can buy fuel for my vehicles.
2: Yep. And like you, I'm following your example of, uh, we are now getting chickens as part of raising more of our own food. Um, I'm, I'm noticing that, uh, there, there are some pretty serious looking people these days. Um, Picking up, uh, you know, gardening implements, picking up, you know, yep. the, the things that will make it easier for them to grow more of their own food. Thankfully, I'm living and you're living in a little more rural area. But um, I feel for the folks who are, are trapped, you know, in a, in a more urban setting where that may not be possible.
1: Well, I do, too. I, I feel horrible for them because they're completely in for all to these forces. They have almost no control over them. Uh, the cost of the gas, if they have gas heating in their apartment, condo or house. Uh, the cost of the water, which isn't their own well water that's being pumped by some central authority to their house uh, and everything else, and simply not having uh, the ability, really, because they don't have, say, enough land uh, to have animals or they can't because of local regulation. But even so, there are things that you can do. If you if you really want to get into this and get creative with it, you can grow vegetables inside and, and on a remarkably small piece of land on the outside, and that's that's one very effective thing that you can do to claw back some of uh, the control that is being wrested away from you over your life. And, you know, the, the key thing I think now is just to keep calm, hunker down and build associations with your friends and your neighbors so that you can ride through this. Cause I do think we're going to be in for a, a rough period of time.
2: Amen. No, I, I, I wholeheartedly echo what, what you're saying. This is the time to know who you can count on. And if you haven't built those relationships or mended those fences, uh, you know, if, there, if there's a rift of some kind, this might be a really good time to take care of that before things get um, desperate. Hopefully that doesn't sound yeah. too too uh, cryptic or too apocalyptic, but
1: um, I agree.
2: Well, know, we've got tough times ahead.
1: It's tough, but, you know, one thing about it that I, I consider to be salutary, good and healthy is that reality is asserting itself and fraudulence and falsity and all of these things that have been corrosively eating away at what we used to consider to be America uh, are coming back. You know, people are beginning to realize that actions have consequences, that ideas matter, and that being of substance or trying to be of substance, of substance be upright and honest in your dealings, and to associate with people who share those values is how you build a society as opposed to tearing one down.
2: Hear, here. Eric, we got just a couple of minutes left here. Let's, uh, let's take a brief uh, look at uh, anything automotive that's on your radar screen. I know that uh, you have a great love of things with wheels, both two- and four-wheeled variety. Uh, anything fascinating that's uh, come in and out of your driveway here of late?
1: Well, nothing particularly fascinating. Uh, you know, on deck, I, I hope to get within the next two months, assuming the nukes don't fly, <laughs> is the jailbreak version of the what will be the very last of the Hellcat Challenger and Chargers. Are you familiar with that? Um, I can't say that I am. Well, you know, rather than I'll go gently into that good night, Dodge, bless them, has decided to put one last sun in the eye before they can no longer legally build vehicles like the V8-powered uh, Charger and Challenger. And so they're, they're coming up with this uh, final big bang in the, Jailbreak edition of the Hellcat, Challenger, and Charger Rimlite, which will have more than 800 horsepower. Oh my word! From its supercharged mev V8, and which will dabble into the nine-second range through the quarter mile on drag slicks.
2: Okay, that's that's pretty impressive. Well, yep. hopefully, hopefully the V8 will continue to live on. I don't, I don't mean to imply we're headed for Mad Max times, but. You know, the movie does make me think about uh, what's been happening to all of us. Yeah, you know, I look engines. at
1: my Trans Am in the garage, and, you know, that's what it is. It's awesome, lot of interceptors, except mine happens to be orange, except black. Tell everybody where to find your website, Eric. Sure, it's epautos.com. I'm pretty easy to find. You can also just type in my name on pretty much any search engine, I suppose, unless I've been blackballed and censored, and you can find myself that way.
2: Okay, and I, I know I, in, I include the lewrockwell.com website as uh, one yep. of my regular resources for wrong thinkers. Yep. Eric is a very uh, regularly featured writer on that site. Eric, great to catch up with yep. you again. Keep a stiff upper lip right, pip, pip,
1: and all that. We'll talk again right. next week. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Brian.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
2: Yeah, it's no secret. We live in a time of extreme misinformation, deception, propaganda, I could think of a few other words too, but uh, not all of them are fit for polite society. Bottom line is, uh, there is a battle on for your mind, and uh, you get to make the choice. You get to choose. Where does your allegiance go? What do you consider reality? What do you consider the basis upon which you understand the world around you? Well, I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I'm definitely here to tell you that uh, you've got to think as clearly and independently as possible. That's what this program is for. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com, also Sewing and SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. <laughs> Easy for me to say. You know, people who understand that their natural rights limit the power of government over them are the same kind of people who are less likely to simply obey whatever the ruling class is telling them to do. Got a great article here from Alexander Salter on reason, rights, and liberty in the good life. He says, natural rights are the foundation of a just government. Life, liberty, and property are non-negotiable. The pursuit of happiness, meaning a life well-lived, not mere satisfaction or pleasure, depends on the government respecting man's rights. Now, just as an aside here, do you realize there's a time where that would have been just common sense? Seriously, the average person would have just, well, of course, yes, this is self-evident. I mean, you'd figure this out just walking down the street. But for some reason, this is not well understood today. And it's probably not well understood because we have, uh, we've lost touch with our roots, especially our, our philosophical and principled roots. Alexander Salter asks, well, where do these rights come from? The Declaration of Independence asserts that all men are endowed by their Creator with rights. Now, the Founders had no problem in believing in a divine sanction for each person's moral entitlements. So to them, respecting natural rights meant honoring God, the source of human dignity. He says we have a duty to protect rights because we have a duty to obey God. However, natural rights are not a specifically religious concept. In fact, he says, even those who don't believe in God understand the natural equality of men also proclaimed in the Declaration. Because human persons are moral equals, we must regard our fellows as ends in themselves. He says, when we trample on the rights of others, we subordinate them to our own ends, reducing them to mere means. And it's wrong to treat people like tools. A human being is not an instrument to be manipulated by his presumed betters. Alexander Salter says, Equal personhood means equal dignity, which establishes rights as a universal principle. Now he goes on to explain that natural rights deserve protection for reasons other than just duty. Results matter too. And when it comes to results, he says, for example, societies that value life, liberty, and property are wealthier, healthier, and more socially equal than societies that don't. A rights-respecting society is a free society in which human ingenuity can best solve important social problems. Creativity requires freedom because creativity can't function under coercion. Alexander Salter writes, the greatest institution for harnessing ingenuity is the free market. And he says, once upon a time, all of humanity was wretchedly poor. Now, thanks to the power of markets, we enjoy living standards that would be unimaginable to our ancestors. So, for example, on average, an an American earns about $63,000 a year. That's about $170 per day. Now, in comparison, it wasn't that long ago that everyone but aristocrats had to live on less than $2 a day. This enrichment would have been impossible without market-supported innovation, which in turn requires private property and the rule of law. So free markets are the extension into the economic sphere of man's natural rights. Now, if duty is too abstract a concept for you, an 85-fold increase in living standards is a pretty good reason to defend natural rights. Life, liberty, and property deliver the goods plain and simple. Salter says, protecting rights also helps us become better people. Performing our duty isn't automatic. We have to work for it. And good consequences don't materialize by ourselves. We have to make them happen. He says, our ability to build worthy lives for ourselves, our families, and our communities depends on good ethical habits, which help us bear the weight of duty and strive for great achievements. In the Western philosophical tradition, we call these ethical habits virtues, and a virtuous person is someone who has exercised their moral muscles over and over again. You become a good man the same way you become good at free throws. Practice, practice, practice. Alexander Salter says some philosophers who believe statecraft is soulcraft want to use politics to make men good. But the most government can do is make us free because freedom is a prerequisite for virtue. He says coerced virtue is a contradiction in terms. A soldier who fights only when compelled by an officer isn't courageous. A citizen who only gives to the poor when compelled by a bureaucrat isn't charitable. Natural rights promote virtue by creating the social conditions necessary for people to grow and flourish. Citizens protected against force and fraud are free to work on the most important project of them all, themselves. So, duty, consequences, and virtue point to a common truth, and that is natural rights are woven into the fabric of reality. And Alexander Salter says any political philosophy that denies man's inalienable rights is un-American, un american and inhuman, true justice requires life, liberty, and property. I've had the opportunity to interview uh, Alexander um, many times in the last few years. And, uh, and I, I really like his take. By the way, he and I don't line up on a number of things, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But this is one of the best explanations I've heard about about uh, reasons for rights and how liberty and the good life are inseparably connected to Government being limited by our natural rights. But to a lot of people that's going to sound just like a foreign language. I'll tell you the big takeaway that I take from his article though is is that the most important project of our all, of our the most important project of all rather, is working on ourselves. And in a time where there's so much that is just clearly out of our control in the sense that you and I cannot look at the geopolitical situation, wave our hand and, you know, affect change. Even if you let's say, for instance, you, you know, suit up and you go to Ukraine to fight or something like that. That's probably not going to change much either. But the one place where we do seem to have a remarkable amount of influence. Is what do we have to offer society in terms of ourselves? This is what Albert J. Knock referred to as the one improved unit. Do you want to make society a better place? Great. Offer society one improved unit. And that means we start with ourselves. And I don't want to make this sound like, you know, hey, it's a rah, 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 you know, self-improvement. Everybody, you know, buy my course and I'm going to get you on the pathway to success and fame. And Nope. It's something much simpler than that. And yet at the same time, it's also harder because, because it's so simple. If you are actively striving to become the best version of yourself, and only you are, are the one who gets to make the call of what is that best version? What does it look like? Is it someone who can spout, you know, every uh, every uh, you know bit of the Constitution from memory? I mean, for some people, that might be it. For others, it might be the best version of yourself is a good, honest person who can be counted on to do the right thing for the right reasons at all times and in all circumstances. You find a stranger's wallet laying in the parking lot at the grocery store. You don't pick it up and, you know, liberate any cash from it and then toss it aside thinking, well, sucks to be them. A truly good person does what it takes to reunite that wallet and its contents with it, with its owner. It's not even a, an afterthought. It's just, nope, this is what a good person does. It's consistency and knowing your principles, knowing who you are and what you stand for, and then living up to it day in and day out. And I know that I'm making that sound like, well, it's just so easy. You just, you know, be a good person and it just takes care of itself. But if you've been around the block once or twice, you understand this takes significant effort and there will be twists and turns and temptations and tests and traps and trials that will come along and and try to distract you or tempt you to take an easier path. I don't know what your personal path to greatness is, but I say this with absolute confidence. I am 100% sure there is personal greatness within you. And in fact, I believe that that personal greatness has been placed exactly where you are right now at your stage in life and where you are, you know, geographically. By a wise and loving God, because there is something you can do to contribute to the betterment of this world. In fact, it's something only you can do. And if you're serious about doing it, the very first thing you got to do is build your understanding of what are my inalienable rights what are the principles and the practices of freedom
0: know them and live up to them that's the key this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show hey welcome back to the show
2: I want to give a shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Why should you talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage? Well, I'll admit, this, this is a message probably of greatest importance to my listeners located in the great state of Utah. And particularly if you are one of the people who has recently moved to Utah, uh, from, from points unknown, all I know is that there's a steady flow of people from other states to the Intermountain West. And if you're looking for a home, you know it's a very competitive real estate market. So Heather's the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. Now you can click on the email link that I provide in my sponsor links in my show notes. You can also call 435-703-4522. Count on the experience and the insight of the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage to get you the loan you need quickly and at the best rates possible. By the way, if you're keeping tabs on home prices, you've probably noticed that uh, they are still very much on the rise. And I think this is true in most places in the country. Got a great article here from the Foundation for Economic Education. This was written by Patrick Carroll. Here's the real reason young people can't afford a home. He says the housing crisis is fundamentally a supply and demand problem. Patrick Carroll says, like so many millennials these days, Charles Bryant has been having a rough time of a rough go of things in recent years. The 39-year-old New York native had a good job as a hotel manager in Delaware, but things changed quickly when the pandemic hit. Bryant recently told Fortune, I was one of those guys that had a five-year, ten-year plan. I wanted to be at a certain place. Unfortunately, those plans dissolved when he had to take a pay cut and eventually made the hard decision to leave his hotel job. He said the pandemic halted all the positive momentum I had built professionally in the 10 years prior. Now, after searching for new opportunities, Bryant finally found a job as an operations manager for a major retailer, a position that's helped him through these trying times. But while he may have avoided the worst, his life is still far from where he wants it to be. He has $42,000 in student debt and lives with his parents in arrangement of necessity given the skyrocketing price of homes. In a lot of ways, Bryant's story reflects some growing trends. Many young people have had to change course in recent years. In fact, many are saddled with student debt. Many are living with their parents. Indeed, roughly 58% of 18- to 24-year-olds were living with their parents in 2021, as well as roughly 17% of 25- to 34-year-olds. Now, the reason for the trend is not hard to pin down. A staggering 70% of Americans between the ages of 23 and 40 who want to buy a home say they can't afford to do so. That's according to Peter Rex in a recent Newsweek column. And those who can are doing so at a later age than their parents. In all, only 43% of millennials are currently homeowners. And with house prices up nearly 120% since 1965, adjusting for inflation, that number will likely remain low for quite some time. So, why are housing prices so high? That's a question everyone's asking, but few seem to have a good answer for. Patrick Carroll says some blame greed, but that argument doesn't really hold water. People haven't suddenly become more greedy than they were a few decades ago. Another explanation is that money printing from the Federal Reserve is causing inflation, and that is certainly part of the problem. The Fed's purchases of mortgage-backed securities in particular may be inflating housing prices above what they would be otherwise. But with housing prices ballooning so quickly, inflation doesn't likely account for the lion's share of the price hikes. What does account for it is good old supply and demand. Simply put, the primary reason housing prices are soaring is because supply is being limited while the demand is growing. And with respect to supply, there are basically two ways to expand, up and out. So, on the one hand, cities can build taller, higher-density residences. On the other hand, they can build on new land at the outskirts of the city. Now, the problem is, both of these options are seriously unpopular. With respect to building up, many people are fiercely opposed to high-density developments in their local communities, and as a result, most municipalities have strict zoning laws that prevent or at least limit these kinds of initiatives. Now, if you suggest building out you quickly encounter the wrath of environmentalists who are on a mission to mitigate urban sprawl, and environmentalists have passed many land use regulations too. So the Greenbelt in Ontario, for instance, is a two hundred thousand I'm sorry, a two million acre swath of land surrounding Toronto permanently protected from development because of environmental considerations. Patrick Carroll says red tape is another huge barrier to housing development. Permits, building codes, and all other sorts of regulations make it far more expensive to build new homes than it needs to be. And those expenses make it that much harder to increase the supply of homes on the market. Now, the demand for housing, of course, is largely determined by population. Generally speaking, the more people there are in a country, the more demand there will be for housing. Population changes are in turn determined by two factors the natural growth rate accounting for births and deaths and net migration accounting for immigration and emigration in the U S which currently has a population of about 334 million, the natural growth rate and net migration rate are both positive. So they both contribute to the increasing demand for housing. Now he says historically, the U S population has grown by about 0.9% per year on average. It's not a particularly high rate, but it's enough to put some constant pressure on the demand side of the equation. In the end, though, it's all about trade-offs. Patrick Carroll says, now that we've identified the problems, the solution should be obvious, right? Well, unfortunately, that's not quite how economics works. The point of going through the factors affecting supply and demand wasn't to identify potential solutions, but potential trade-offs. As we've seen, there are many ways that housing prices could be brought down, But if you look closely, every single one of them requires that we sacrifice something. So we could relax zoning restrictions, for instance, but then people would have to sacrifice the character of their neighborhoods. We could stick it to the environmentalists and embrace urban sprawl, but then we would have to sacrifice the environment and the benefits that come with preserving it. We could relax permits and regulations, but we would sacrifice oversight and assurances of safety. And similar trade-offs exist on the demand side. Though few would be in favor of government interference with the natural growth rate, many people are open to changing immigration policy. And it's not hard to figure out that fewer immigrants mean less demand. The trade-off, however, is that you lose the economic and cultural benefits that come with free movement, which can be fairly significant. So grappling with these trade-offs helps us put the housing price problem into perspective. It's easy to want more affordable housing, But the question is, what are you willing to give up to get it? The character of your community? Environmentalism? Oversight? Immigration? You have to pick something. If you don't, prices will just keep going up. Now, having said that, he says it's important to note that recognizing these trade-offs is not the same thing as making a moral judgment about these policies. For instance, the fact that lower immigration would lead to lower housing demand doesn't mean that lowering immigration is what we should do. The point is to recognize that there's a tension between all of these things and that something always has to give. Now, there's room to choose what it is that we sacrifice, but there's no such thing as a free lunch. You can't have your cake and eat it too. As Thomas Sowell said, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. So having established the inevitable trade-offs that exist in a world of scarcity, the question then becomes, why haven't we figured out a better trade-off yet? Surely the status quo isn't our best option, is it? Well, the answer has to do with the nature of the political system. The first lesson of economics is scarcity, said Thomas Sowell. There's never enough of anything to satisfy all those who want it. The first lesson of politics is to disregard the first lesson of economics. So the fact of the matter is politicians hate acknowledging trade-offs. As a result, they spend little time considering them. They want to talk about what they'll give people, not what they'll take from them. We will lower the price of housing is, is a winning platform. We will lower the price of housing by increasing the density of your communities and allowing urban sprawl is more accurate and balanced, which is precisely why it's political suicide. Remember, the first lessons of politics is to ignore the trade-offs. Aldous Huxley reminds us that facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored. And Ayn Rand says you can avoid reality, but you can't avoid the consequences of avoiding reality. In other words, trade-offs still exist whether we want to acknowledge them or not. Thus, real solutions, or shall we say improvements, need to begin by acknowledging the trade-offs. The essence of any political position is not only to, get, to want what you get, but what you're willing to, uh, to give up in order to get that. See, that's the true discussion we need to be having if we want to make any progress on this issue. Now, you might choose a different trade-off. You might choose different uh, values like property rights that hopefully play a role in that decision. But uh, Patrick Carroll says the point is that something always has to give. So what's the real reason young people can't afford a home? Well, simply put, it's because most people are not willing to give up any of the values they hold that are restricting supply and increasing demand. And as long as that remains true, he says prices will continue to soar. Very informative article. some great charts and graphs that go along with it. Click on the link I provide in the show notes.
0: You'll find it at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep.
1: We've got a blind date with Destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This
0: is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there
2: and welcome to the show. We live in a time where it is dang tough to tell what is real and what isn't. And this show is not here to uh, answer all of your questions, but I'm definitely here to uh, better equip you to think for yourself. Not because I'm going to tell you what to think, but I'm going to give you some alternative viewpoints and some uh, highly credible and principled uh, content that will hopefully give you something to consider other than whatever the uh, talking points are that have gone out through most of the mainstream sources. Oh, I know it sounds terribly conspiratorial, but, you know... I think that uh, this is the highest duty we have during times of crisis, and that is to think clearly and independently. Now, I've got some great uh, partners who help me bring this message out every single day. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, lifesavingfood.com, also MonticelloCollege.org, Sewing and, Quilting and hslammo.com. And I wanted to start with something here. I know this is this is very controversial these days, but there's a lot of uh, interpretation, there's a lot of theory about what is the war in Ukraine really about? And what I'm about to share with you, I'm not presenting as this is the authoritative take and this is the only one you should consider. I just think this is one of the more well-thought-out analyses of, uh, of what's going on there. This is from Tom Luongo, who says, thanks to Putin's war, the race is on, for the Great Reset. And he makes some really interesting points here. He says, Vladimir Putin has become the pivotal figure of the 21st century. Of that, there is no doubt. The size and breadth of the ground operation in Ukraine, despite some mistakes, has been impressive. Now, he says, before I go any further, I want to make sure that we're clear. While the situation seems to be moving decidedly in Russia's favor, I'm willing to remain reasonably skeptical of all the reports I've seen so far. He says the slowdown in the information flow over the past few days has been as impressive as the stated gains of the Russian military in Ukraine over that same time frame. Luongo says, since what I've been seeing is repetition and amplification of the same maps and sources, nothing should be taken for granted about the outcomes in Ukraine for Putin and Russia. Now, that said, he says, let's not get carried away in thinking the Ukrainian army is putting up much of a fight here because they're not. Bill Roggio's article from the Times of London somehow made it through the media blackout on nearly all things moderately Russia Russia positive and lays things out for the normies in the audience. Quote, sympathy for the outnumbered and outgunned defenders of Kiev has led to exaggeration of Russian setbacks, misunderstanding of Russian strategy, and even baseless claims from amateur psychoanalysts that Putin has lost his mind. A more sober analysis shows that Russia may have sought a knockout blow but always had well-laid plans for follow-on assaults if its initial moves proved insufficient. The world has underestimated Putin before, and those mistakes have led in part to this tragedy in Ukraine. End quote. Now, Tom Luongo says, what's obvious to me is that Putin put in motion a plan far more ambitious than was originally expected by the West, and their hysterical overreaction to this decapitation of Ukraine is his barometer on this. He says, because of all this hysteria, There are now all manner of questions as to why Putin did this and why, in effect, he allowed the West to respond to the war in this way. And it's generating some quite fanciful theories. The rabbit holes are getting dug nearly as quickly as Russia's armed forces have taken the northern coast of the Black Sea. But he says, I feel like all of them have a nugget of truth. But they all lead to the same fundamental conclusion in his mind. And that is, this has become a race between two radically different versions of the Davos crowd's plans for a great reset. And what happens in Ukraine over the next few days or weeks will determine which path to the future we wind up on. So there are more questions than answers, says Tom Luongo. One of the big questions out there is the following. Why would Putin launch such a massive campaign if he knew the response would be so strong from the West? Is it because he's really a secret World Economic Forum stooge who's accelerating their plans for them by sacrificing Ukraine on the altar of their brave new world? Loango says, in short, no. This is clearly a theory akin to the whole Q-tard 4D chess crowd who lap up CIA, MI6 disinformation to feed their growing solipsistic fugues. It's just dumb. Davos et al. are openly honest in their hatred of him. He stood athwart their plans for more than two decades now, and the factions who hated him less before troops crossed into Ukraine, now all of them have their marching orders. Putin must be destroyed. He must be Miloseviched. He is the new Donald Trump, in case you hadn't noticed. The better way to frame that question, he says, would be to make the argument that Putin was their unwitting dupe here, goaded into a war he didn't want, to give them the excuse to continue the Great Reset by pivoting off of the failure of COVID-19 and on to him. They could then manipulate market disruptions to their preferred ends. And he says, this is where people like Martin Armstrong have landed this weekend. I don't begrudge anyone that conclusion. It's at least closer to the truth in his read. He says, I believe they've gotten Davis's motivation correct, but he says, I don't think they have Putin's correct. Because it implies that Putin did not game plan this out. And Tom Luongo says, I think that's also wrong. Even Bill Roggio begrudgingly admits this. In fact, he says, I would think Davos going financial DEFCON 5 would have been number one on his list of potential reactions from his adversaries. Because that's the way they've reacted in the past to major challenges to their plans, like the election of Trump or Brexit. And he says, it would be dumb of you to think Putin so thick. Do you really think he wasn't paying attention over the last six years? That he slept through the clear operation to take out Trump through election fraud and societal upheaval in the U.S. in 2020? The four years of libs lighting their hair on fire over every word that came out of his mouth? The sham impeachment process of 2019 over a phone call with Ukraine? Of course not. Putin and his staff are completely dialed in because the survival of their country demands it. They know better than the people making up these theories who exactly they're dealing with. And for that reason, the scenario that makes the most sense to him is what he's been suggesting in his last few posts. He's got three of them linked right here in the article. And again, I'm not saying you got to believe everything Tom Luongo's saying, but it's worth considering his take. He's got a very, very um, plausible take on what's going on. It's up to you to decide whether it meets, you know, your stringent requirements for truth. Now, he says Putin is upping the occasional or the operational tempo, rather, on the neolibs of the Davos crowd in Europe and the White House and their neocon useful idiots in the U.S.-U.K. foreign policy circles, Congress and intelligence services uh, as well, in order to create the ultimate geopolitical Russian cauldron for their avarice. Ukraine represents everyone's existential threat. If the neocons lose, they're done as an influence within foreign policy circles in the West forever because they will have failed to penetrate Fortress Russia. If Davos loses, their grand plans for global domination become diminished to, at best, the European Union and some parts of the Commonwealth. If Russia loses, the entire global south, as Pepe Escobar calls it, fails to escape the fiat debt-based slavery of the Western Central Banking Cartel because they will control the flow of Russian natural resources in such a way that they will not be stopped. Now, he says more on this later. And if you're wondering why everything about this war feels weird or off, it's because the stakes are so high for everyone. These are the stakes for the world. And because of that, you had to expect the quality of information surrounding it has literally dropped to the international price of the Russian sovereign debt. In other words, zero. So he says, do not let Putin's focus on finishing off Ukraine militarily blind you to thinking that this is his true end goal. This is, as Thomas Lamongo said the other day, an opening salvo. And he says, we've already seen that there's no appetite within NATO, which means both the U.S. military and EU politicians to go into a direct fight with Russia. That means there probably is no appetite for nuclear war. But that doesn't mean that nuclear war is a zero probability event. It just means there's no current appetite for it. And the reason for that is the belief that there is a way to stop Putin in Ukraine. And this belief still exists in the minds of both the neocons at the State Department and Davos. That belief hinges on binding Putin in a land war in Ukraine he can't win against an insurgency of the type and kind Whitney Webb just exposed the CIA has been building around the globe, including here in the U.S. for years now. This has become the official U.S. policy, setting up a Ukrainian government in exile in Poland while sending money there to support an al-Qaeda-like guerrilla army to harass the Russians. I mean, this makes sense, since this is what we did in Syria, using Turkey as the staging ground for their assaults into Idlib and Aleppo. It's likely the reason why Putin has been so adamant about denazifying Ukraine and speaking in absolute terms about their not receiving protections under the Geneva Convention. Many of them, in fact, are foreign-based actors, at least according to his intelligence. So regardless of the fact that exterminating these men would be war crimes legally, Putin, with his Ph.D. in international law, either doesn't care or feels if he wins the war, he'll be able to make his case in any post-war tribunal. Are you intrigued? Shall we continue? Okay, we've got to take a quick break. Let's come back to Tom Luongo's
0: column, Just the Other Side of These Messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
2: Before I move on, let me take a moment here to uh, tell you about lifesavingfood.com. I know a lot of people are looking around at uh, the rising prices of groceries and some of the uncertainty in the world and thinking, you know, maybe that food storage program would be a good idea. Well, here is a special deal. This is from ReadyWise. Uh, This is from lifesavingfood.com, but it's ReadyWise Emergency Food Supply, 25-year shelf life. This is the ReadyWise 240-serving entree and breakfast package. Two big stackable buckets Normal price is $578.99. You can save 45% and snag them for three twenty-nine ninety-nine. This is a one-person, one-month supply of food. All you have to do is add water. Be a great place to, uh, to get started or to shore up your existing home food storage. Click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. That's lifesavingfood.com. All right, back to Tom Luongo's article. Thanks to Putin's war in in Ukraine, the race is on for the Great Reset. Now he says you can see attempts to paint Putin as reckless everywhere. The events at uh, the Zaforzy, Zaporzy, I'm anyway, the nuclear power plant were reported to put all the blame on Russia, while the silenced Russian information sources, including the media of, or the Ministry of Defense, rather told a very different story. So he says, I'm happy, happy to bracket between the two in order to suss out the truth. But he says, the longer the official war can be prolonged in Ukraine, the more time the Davos-backed insurgency gets to form up while resupplying Ukraine's west. And it could also be why Putin has to uh, up the operational tempo in Ukraine soon, or he and his army could be in big trouble. So the race to the end of the ground war is here. And with that shift... It's time to back off the battlefield and look instead at the capital markets to see what they're doing. Because there is no military response coming from NATO other than guerrillas. Now the capital markets are supposed to be Davos's turf, while Russia is financially weak. But that's only if you look at things in nominal terms, nominal dollars, euros, etc. He says Russia has weapons it has only just begun to deploy here. So Act 2 has to be the financial war because the guerrilla insurgency strategy only works if the governments in NATO's pivotal countries don't collapse. This is why Putin will have to make a move financially in the next few weeks. Now, two minor moves have already been made. First is the removal of the value-added tax on purchasing gold for Russian citizens. The second he announced yesterday, avoiding default on foreign-held Russian debt by offering bond payments in rubles to bondholders. Now, Luongo says these are minor moves. They simply signal to the world that Russia has the intentions to make good on its promises and not punish those who are bystanders in this war between governments. Luongo says if I know Putin well, he will wait for his next big move so as to cause maximal damage in the financial markets. And that means waiting to see how the central banks and capital markets respond to the big changes occurring within them right now. In fact, he says I alluded to one of these moves the other day saying that those who brave the waters, for instance, Shell at negative twenty eight fifty to Brent, will get their Russian oil at a steep discount. Those that don't play don't don't pay rather through the nose, further accelerating let's try that again. Those who don't will pay through the nose, further accelerating the decline of those economies as inflation spirals out of control and people put the blame not on Putin, but on the people in charge. Moreover, Russia has kept the gas flows going to ensure that money keeps flowing into the country to finance further expansion of its gold reserves. And that's the key. Gold. Russia has oil it pulls out of the ground for less than ten dollars a barrel. If Biden decides to exercise to excise Russian energy from U.S. markets and talking with Maduro in Venezuela is a clear signal here, then Davos is pushing for this to further isolate Russian energy. Now, the JCPOA was supposed to be signed this week to get Iran's oil back into the market, but Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov put a monkey wrench in that. But it's Iran's model of resistance to U.S. sanctions that is Russia's model for the future. Simply put, sell gold for oil. During the pre-JCPOA period, Iran did this with buyers depositing the gold in Turkish banks, and Iran kept the oil flowing. Third-party oil trades through Hong Kong, maybe, will also get around any sanctions for Russia and allow them to sell oil while making China a mint in transaction fees. But the big move for Putin is quite simple, which is to offer up its oil at a steep discount to the futures price, but only in gold, physical gold. The current ratio of gold to oil is roughly 17 barrels an ounce. Now, all Putin has to do is begin a global run on physical gold. Oil is the M0 of global trade. It's the trade on which all the West's financialization power is built upon. And that foundation is built on the petrodollar. So by directly tying Russia's Russia's marginal barrel produced to the price of gold far below market prices, that actually does two things. First, it creates a massive arbitrage opportunity for gold and oil that the market will fill. Second, it follows, it collapses the valuations of all assets priced in paper gold to the price of physical. So either the price of everything collapses to maintain the fiction of $2,000 gold, or the price of gold rises to meet the new price. And Tom Luongo says this forces the West to come clean on just how much gold it actually has. Creates a massive short-term run on physical gold and forces a repricing of everyone's balance sheet. And he says, that, my friends, is the big weapon Putin is holding in reserve. He can afford to sell his oil at a deeply discounted price. I'm thinking 50 barrels an ounce should do it. He forces the world to reprice oil in terms of gold and then, by extension, rubles rather than the dollar. This creates positive gold inflow into Russia to create a two-tiered ruble, the long-held dream of Sergey Glazev, a domestic gold-backed ruble, and a global circulating one which floats. And Tom Luongo says the key to understanding whether things are primed for this is not looking at Europe, but at Saudi Arabia. Now I'm going to confess, there's a good portion of that that goes right over my head. But it makes me want to dig a little bit deeper. And there are plenty of uh, links within Tom Luongo's article here that uh, you can follow to get answers to those questions. I think the financial aspect is is the next shoe that we're waiting to drop. I know everybody's kind of got an eye on the sky and listening for air raid sirens, duck and cover. Where's Where's the fallout shelter? But I think before we see things get that serious, we're much more likely to see financial upheaval. And this is where we've got to proceed with some caution. And I, I don't know, you know, I'm not a financial advisor, so I guess I should get that disclaimer out there. I'm not going to try and tell you, yes, this is exactly what you do. Take all of your money and put it into gold, put it into silver. But I'll confess, I've definitely watched the news over the last few weeks and went, hmm, isn't that interesting? Those Canadian truckers, accounts frozen because they had dissenting opinions. In fact, people who donated to them, frozen out of their accounts and otherwise put on financial probation, so to speak. That's a little bit scary. And then you see what's happened here in just the last week and a half. All the different financial services, Visa, PayPal, and so forth, all denying service to people within Russia. This will teach them, we'll show them. And, you know, it's, uh, this is to say nothing of, uh, well, let's are, there, are we taking sides here? What I'm noticing, and I think you should be noticing too, is just that easy. Someone can make the decision, hey, this person's opinions are unpopular, shut them down. Make it impossible for them to participate within the monetary system. You don't have to arrest them. You don't have to charge them with a crime. You just essentially create an electronic unperson and uh, tell them your money's no good anymore. Seems like a pretty effective way to control people. And while we may cheer, you know, yeah, suck it to them, man. Let those Russians, you know, pay for the the crimes of their their leader, Vladimir Putin. I'm going to suggest if you're cheering this development, uh, you're not thinking very far down the road because the very same tactics can and will be used against you
0: when it's your turn to get in the barrel. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
2: Still ahead, a couple of things we're going to talk about. Uh, mask mandates are disappearing quickly, but there are some stubborn holdouts. And I think the biggest complaint I'm hearing, at least seeing from people in my social media feeds, is if you're going to travel by plane, yeah, there's still that to insistence. you got to be properly masked. Anyway. I don't know. Maybe there's widespread noncompliance. We'll we'll get to that in a few moments. Two quick articles I wanted to bring to your attention. These are both in today's show notes. We've heard people in authority use words like safe and effective when describing the COVID vaccines. Got an article here from Dr. Brian C. Jundef. He's an MD. And he asks, whatever happened to safe and effective when it comes to COVID now I'm not going to go into tremendous detail here, other than to suggest you really should take a look at this guy's article, and and it's the information is coming out in spite of the smokescreen that has been put up, in spite of the fact that you know Pfizer and others were told, oh yes, you can wait to release that information in another fifty years or so. But there are serious questions about uh, whether the the data shows that uh, the vaccines were were doing the job that they were told we were told they would do or not. And I know there are still some holdouts going oh, Brian the vaccines work and you know it's just wrong to protest these sorts of things. Well all I know is anybody who has resisted getting the vaccine to this point first of all congratulations you you pretty much have an unbreakable mind in the sense that you couldn't be coerced into it. By the way, I'm not trying to insult anybody who did take the vaccine. I'm just saying to, to stand up to the, uh, to the pressure to get the vaccine, bravo, you did well. But there's also a lot of concern that is now beginning to come forward about, well, if this doesn't prevent me from getting the illness, or if it doesn't prevent me from spreading the illness, why am I doing this? And this leads me to the topic that I really want to get to. So, again, I'll, I'll encourage you, check out uh, Dr. Brian Jundef, His uh, his article, which is linked in my show notes. I'll just give you one quick excerpt here. He says, businesses and lives were ruined by COVID and the resulting restrictions and mandates, given the world's collective sacrifice. He asks, aren't we entitled to honesty and transparency from those who create these rules and hold the fates of so many individuals in their hands? Or has everything about COVID simply been a means to an end, replacing freedom and liberty with top-down control? Excellent article. Worth your time. Now, here's the one I wanted to get to, and that is the people who pushed for lockdowns and other denials of personal autonomy. They're in full damage control right now. They are trying their best to Oh, well, we were never for that. Why no? We supported uh, everything that you support and yet yeah, they're they're looking for the exits. They're scared. Kit Knightley, writing for offguardian.com says or offguardian.org rather says do not believe the media's fake postmortem. The pandemic was not a mistake. And the story's going to be that COVID hysteria was the result of flawed data or or panic, but it was neither. Kit Knightley says, "As the mainstream media power down the pandemic narrative and engage war mode, there's still time for one last autopsy, the media's postmortem of the pandemic itself. And in a beautifully fitting piece of poetic irony, COVID's autopsy will be inaccurate and fitted to a foregone conclusion." So this week has seen the UK's Sage Group discontinuing their regularly their regular monthly meetings, while admitting their predictions were at variance with reality. That's a weaselly way of saying, okay, we were wrong. Yes, our predictions were at variance with reality. Going to have to write that one down. Now, the media are discussing the bad data which was used to build the Imperial College models that called for a lockdown. Kit Knightley points out a Telegraph article, quotes Professor Mark Woolhouse, who claims in his recent book that lockdowns had surprisingly little effect and that anyone who supported lockdown on the basis of the half-million figure was misled, but still lays the blame at the feet of incompetence, never malice. And this is all still part of the story. The, event, the post-event navel-gazing, we've seen it before. They said 9-11 was the result of a failure of imagination. The Iraq War was supposedly the result of bad intelligence, both outright provable lies. A protective rearguard for the establishment narrative. And the agonizing over mistakes and promising to do better next time They're still part of the theater, buttressing the fake story against a more brutal reality. COVID, as it was sold to us, never really existed. The pandemic was not organic. The lockdowns were not the result of panic. Kit Knightley says we've all read the facts. The data was fudged. The tests were useless. The statistics artificially inflated. And many deaths were intentionally caused through institutionalized medical negligence. Hospitals received funding bonuses as payoffs. Just as an aside, I noticed that uh, the story's now coming out that media received a billion-dollar payment from Joe Biden to promote the vaccines. Yeah, just doing our our civic duty here. Hand out. Grease my palms, daddy-o. Kit Knightley says none of that had anything to do with bad data, pessimistic models, or anything like that. They did it all on purpose. All of it. Every life lost. Every business destroyed. Every penny wasted. Every child traumatized. Every moment of anxiety and fear. Every single one entirely intentional. They ruined lives and countries and the global economy as a deliberate policy on the back of a vast web of lies. And the last act of of deception was to claim, well, it was a mistake. Meanwhile, the same agenda that masked itself behind this mistake, mass poverty, food and energy shortages, censorship and social control, is creeping ever closer under a new guy's war. And it's all the same. No matter what they're saying, no matter what they're pretending to care about, what they actually want never changes. Now, Kit Knightley says COVID cost every single one of us something. Safety, money, trust, health, friends, family. But it gave us something, too, and that is a peek behind the curtain. In their ambition, the establishment exposed their true face. So they think if they stop talking about the Great Reset or the new normal or building back better for a few months, we'll forget. But we won't. They told us clearly who they were and what they intended. Now they're going to pretend they didn't mean it. And Kit Knightley says, don't believe it, not for a minute. Yes, uh, we were at variance with reality. I know it's I, I feel like I'm walking the line here sometimes between you know I be being just vengeful and just you know calling for, for blood here. Um I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the one calling for vengeance, but I don't want people to forget. While, while this injury is still fresh, while, while the the blood is still seeping from the wound, I think we need to remember very clearly that this was inflicted on us, not out of, uh, oops, sorry, you know, we were just clumsy and just, you know, how could we have foreseen this? It was based on bad information. It was based on a desire to control and to accelerate the, the means of controlling populations. And then it was upheld and still is being pushed on people. Still, kids are being forced in some areas to wear masks to school. Even though, uh, you know, most of the country seems to have come to its senses and dropped the mandates. I don't think that's something you just shrug off as, well, as long as we all learn something, I guess we can just, you know, move forward. And, you know, please understand, lest there be any, you know, desire to twist my words here I'm not calling for violence here but I think the people who perpetuated this and I think the people who enforced it need to be removed from power and permanently prevented from from ever accessing that kind of power again they have shown their colors they've shown that the, they were willing to sell their souls in a buyer's market this is not the time to trust them just because now they're waving the war flag and screaming about an enemy at the gates. I hate to sound cynical, but man, that's, that is just that's classic distraction and misdirection, trying to get the attention off of them and off of what they have pushed on people and the damage done and onto another enemy, trying to, to stampede us, you know in a, in a different direction. And it's, I'm not talking about something that's going to take, you know, a very short uh, time to, to play out. I think this is probably going to take years. I've heard some people say that maybe as much as a decade or more before the, the people who pushed these lockdowns and enforced these lockdowns and, and held them over the public for so long before they're actually held accountable. I'm OK. That's you know what? If, if it takes some time for justice to play out, then then so be it. And if, for some reason, they manage to skate, well, they've only skated in a very temporary sense because there is a universal justice which applies to every one of us, and eventually they will answer to that universal justice. Of course, we all will, so let's not get too cocky in thinking that, uh, you know, we've got it made. But I'm begging you, do not let this memory fade and do not let the people who inflicted this harm on us skate on some technicality
0: this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show
2: Show. all right welcome back to the show I got to tell you, I'm so happy to have the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, as one of my sponsors. And if you haven't been to their website, it's very easy to find. Take your take your pick here. You can go to SewingQuiltingCenter.com or SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. And I know that uh, you, for for us manly men, well, I would never be into sewing or embroidery or long arm quilting or that kind of thing. But you know what? I think uh, I think these are skills that are really important. And, and I say that from the standpoint of, number one, there's a self-reliance angle. It's great to be able to, to fix or to even fabricate your own clothing or, you know, blankets and quilts and things like this. But there's also a heritage aspect. And I see this as my mom is getting on there in years. And uh, what part of the heritage that she will leave to those who follow in her footsteps are the amazing quilts that she has put together over the years. It's pretty amazing stuff, and if you want to learn more about it, go to their website, SewingQuiltingCenter.com. If you're in Southern Utah, stop into their store. You'll be happy you did. Maybe shoot them an email. Give them a call. Tell them thanks for sponsoring this program. You know, mask mandates are dropping fast, but there are some stubborn holdouts, as anyone traveling by plane understands perfectly. Scott Moorfield, writing for the Brownstone Institute or brownstone.org, asks, will the mask mandate for plane travel ever end? I like his defiance here, too. He says, like those horses on Yellowstone that just refuse to be ridden, I'd like to think that I never, ever broke to the habit of mask wearing. It's always awful. It's always uncomfortable. Every moment I'm forced to wear one of those contraptions is a moment of completely unnecessary suffering. Enforced by power-hungry, hypochondriac tyrants whose primary goal is to make people miserable for as long as possible. I'm nodding my head in agreement. I think he's right here. Sure, adults and even children get accustomed to masks over time, but those who make that argument should remember that prisoners also eventually get institutionalized. So he says, I never got used to mask wearing. In fact, I wear that fact like a badge of honor. Unlike many, he says, I was fortunate enough to be in a state where I could largely ignore the toothless mask mandate in my county. Businesses rarely, if ever, raised a peep at the few maskless people who entered their doors even during the height of the pandemic. They wanted people to wear masks, but they wanted the business more so they didn't turn customers away. But airports, airplanes, trains and train stations... Now, they're an entirely different matter. There, peasants like you and I are forced at proverbial gunpoint to wear masks for hours on end with little to no reprieve. Now, he says, I've had the misfortune of having to fly several times during this ridiculous era, and each time is a misery all its own. But having to play the kabuki theater where, when almost the entire country, including New York City, is living normally is somehow worse. He says, last week, as COVID restrictions faded away in even the bluest of places, for the crime of merely needing to fly to Texas, I found myself again forcibly gagged while traversing a bleak, mindless hellscape where time has inexplicably stood still. Compared to the free world, airports and airplanes are like dystopian alternate realities with a forced order that has completely zero basis in reality. In it, We masked zombies wander seemingly aimlessly from place to place, barely looking up, clearly agitated and unhappy, yet powerless to remedy the situation, lest we find ourselves on a no-fly list or, worse, in a prison cell. Forcibly muzzling passengers who've already been treated like cattle for decades is the perfect leftist power play, and they're playing it for maximum impact. As the pre-flight recording makes abundantly and obnoxiously clear down to the excruciating detail of what needs to happen after every bite and sip. Travelers are expected to be fully masked from above the nose to below the mouth during every non-eating and drinking second of our existence at these infernal places. Now it's torture enough on relatively short on-time flights but God help you if your flight is delayed, or even God won't help you if you're stuck for hours on a tarmac inside a plane that has mechanical issues. Breathing freely is, after all, secondary to following the rules. Now, traveling is stressful enough without this, and yet this is what our tyrannical overlords impose in the name of safety. They don't care about your comfort, only your obedience. They know damn well cloth masks aren't worth the T-shirt material it took to manufacture them, and the recycled air on airplanes makes them as safe or safer than anywhere else indoors. Yet the federal travel mask mandate is likely to be extended even beyond the supposed March 18th expiration. Why? Well, he says I submit it's because they can. It's a scientific fact that these that if these crazed hypochondriac power mongers could control society like they can control those places with the iron fist of the TSA, we'd be in masks forever. But they can't, of course, which is why the politics changed enough for them to relax mandates almost everywhere. But airports and airplanes are a different animal. There, the security theater practiced for decades fits perfectly with the newer, but even more sinister mask theater of the COVID era. And if passengers are still forced to remove their shoes because of the clumsy actions of some loser more than 20 years ago, do you think forcibly muzzling people for the next two decades and beyond is an issue for these ghouls? Boom! Scott Moorfield can drop the mic here. I know that there are those who have a, a more enlightened approach than I do and probably have a better attitude than I do on this, but that uh, that throbbing vein of resentment is is right there, front and center. In, in Scott moorfield's article here but i I agree with him it's it's not a matter of well you know we're just trying to be safe and just trying to keep people no this is about this is a flex on the part of of those in power just to show that we can still force you to do things you don't want to do does that sound cynical well perhaps but I believe it's absolutely the truth and as far as 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 far as I can tell, you know, it's, it's probably not going to go away anytime soon. You know, I, I've, I've had exactly one flight since the pandemic started. And, and it felt like a success to me in the sense that I was able to use my, uh, um, do I dare call it this, my fake mask. It's the one that's made of mesh that you can actually breathe through. And so I, I had that nobody gave me any any problem whatsoever no one gave me so much as a second look But you know you get you, you do get more I I've, I've worn it into you know doctors offices like taking my mom to to have a checkup or something and you know oh no 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 here's an N95 put this on your face and, But I I do not want to wear a mask I don't want to wear it anytime any place and so it's 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 kind of a little test of wills. By the way, the the vaccine uh passports which I know that there are a lot of places that are dropping this now, they're not really enforcing it. I was actually very encouraged to hear um I think it was Connor Boyack who talked about a friend of his who flies a lot. And what this guy did was just had a photoshopped image on his phone. So when they would ask, "Well, can you show me your vaccine passport?" he just flashed this photoshopped image, whatever it was, a QR code or something. And uh, people just glance at it and pfft, nobody checked, nobody verified. It's just for show is the point. And the crazy thing is there are people who are outraged. I saw people responding to Connor's tweet and just, oh, can you believe that? That guy out there putting people's lives in danger. And it's like, whoa, settle down there, Nellie Olson. How do you know this guy's putting people's lives in danger? I think their biggest resentment is that somebody figured out a way to, to flout the rules which must be followed at all costs, and they're not happy about it. That represents a little, uh, a little uh, piece of where they don't have control, a little chink in their armor where they, they can't force people to do what they want them to do. And maybe it sounds petty for me to actually you know, cheer that kind of thing, but I say good for him. I don't think everybody needs to loudly and you know angrily confront, you know, those who are are trying to enforce compliance on this. But I think any way that we can uh thwart compliance, be it uh, openly or surreptitiously, we ought to do it. And I think that uh, I think that's that's a moral thing to do. This is a conversation we'll have to have at another point, but uh, um I've had some very meaningful conversations, somewhat spirited conversations with people who were under the impression that, you know, obedience is the sign of a good person. I'm here to tell you absolutely it is not. In fact, if you look at the worst things that humanity has ever carried out, be it the Holocaust, the Holodomor, any other injustice or atrocity that was committed against innocent people, obedience is the only reason that those things ever happened people were obedient to someone in power
0: when they could have said and should have said no this is the brian hyde show